This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. We live in an amazing city, Washington, D.C., D.C. is rich with history as we drive down or walk down the streets of D.C. The buildings we pass have taken roles and have backstories about significant events that have shaped our city and our nation. One of those buildings is the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. Today we're talking with Thomas Lupke, Secretary Commission of Fine Arts and editor of the book Palace of State, Eisenhower Executive Office Building. Tom, first, thank you for joining us today on Leaders and Legends. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you about the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts. What is its mission? Well, it was established in 1910 as an independent federal commission, seven expert members in the arts, which at the time, the word Beaux-Arts really comes from the French word École des Beaux-Arts, and it was an idea about architecture, landscape architecture, urban design, landscape, all working together to create a city design, which was actually worthy of the national capital. So the, the commission actually sits to review mostly public projects in Washington, D.C. to promote the dignity, appearance, beauty of, this, of the American capital city. Wow. That's a big role here in D.C. with the rich history and all the significant buildings that are here. Yeah, it's it's amazing. We actually uh, we we manage actually a, a case that you wouldn't believe it, but eight hundred cases a year that we're moving through there. So it's a it is a lot of work, but it's a it's a lot of fun. We the, you, if you'd ever heard of us, it would probably have been with major public buildings on the mall, museums, and of course um, national memorials is another area where we really get involved. What is your role as secretary? Well, uh, I actually am a civil servant, and so I actually manage the the operations of the commission. So we've got uh, we meet every month. So we have an agenda of cases, and we have a lot of cases that don't actually ever make it to a hearing. So there's a lot of staff work that goes in managing that many cases every month. And of course, I've got the staff, et cetera. So. It keeps me pretty busy. You've been with the commission since 2005? That's right. Now, you, were an, you are an award-winning architect. What, what drew you to this public service and this important mission? Well, that's an interesting question. I have always been, you know, I, I was actually, I, I was a history major in college, went into preservation for a few years for the federal government, and then became an architect through, after design school. And so I've, I've always been, sort of had one finger in the public sector or interest in it. And I, uh, at, in the early 2000s, I, was, I worked as this, uh, the architect for the city of Alexandria. And this job at the Commission of Fine Arts became available uh, because my predecessor retired after 44 years. And I thought, well, I have one chance in my life to apply for this job. So I did. So how or why did the U.S. Arts Commission uh, decide to publish this book about the Eisenhower Executive Office Building? Well, it's a, it's a great question. Um, it sort of, to some extent, fell in our laps. We have a publication program, and we try to f- highlight uh, topics that are of, related to our mission about the design of the Capitol. Now, this building, also known as the State War and Navy Building, or the, you might, some people might know it as the old Executive Office Building, it was built well before the commission was established. It was built in the late 19th century. Um, but it 
it came out of an effort by the part of the General Services Administration, or GSA, to renovate the building, a huge project that took place between, say, I think 2005 and 15, about a 10-year period. And they wanted to publicize the, the work they'd done and actually make visible this incredible restoration, which, because the building is so hard to get into, it's a way of putting it out there. They were looking for a publisher, and we had a gap in our schedule, and it just wor- it worked out really well, where it just was a perfect fit for us to take it on. There's a really strong commitment to uh, allow the public to see these wonderful buildings and to give access, and, and this big book kind of fills that gap. That's right. It's very hard to get into, and there are spectacular spaces that, uh, you know, were left were beautiful, and then over the decades, and actually century or more, were sort of let go, and now they've been restored. And so this is very well documented in the book. They had GSA gave us about a thousand or more pictures that we were able to use. There's about 400 pictures in the book. It's a, it's it really shows what happened there. It's a, it's an amazing place. I've seen the book, and and what a great coffee table book. Uh, gorgeous, gorgeous pictures. I've been in the building, and uh, these just capture some of the most magnificent rooms in the building. Well, it is one of the most spectacular of Washington's, I say, public buildings. <laughs> it's, it's not really public anymore, but it's it's a it's a public uh, use. So, um, and it's and it's really the only spaces that I can think of that are as sumptuous as some of these spaces are actually in the U.S. Capitol. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. And our guest today is Tom Slupke, Secretary Commission, Fine Arts, and uh, the editor of the book, Palace of the State, Eisenhower Executive Office Building. So can you tell me about the style and the architecture of the building? Yeah, it's a it's a great story. Um, you know, there the 19th century, you have to remember, the United States was actually somewhat of a provincial power, right? And and in the early part of the early federal era, they were very conscious about trying to emulate classical architecture coming out of, you know, Greece and Rome. But to some extent, this was also what was being done in Europe. So there's always a little bit. So there was a political agenda, but there was also a, a little bit of like, well, that's what's cool, where things are really happening in London and Paris and stuff. Uh, so that really set the bones of De- of Washington's architecture in the 19th century. But after the Civil War, it was a kind of a new game. Think the rules really changed. There was a lot more interest in commercial development. The city was suddenly growing. Um, it was all the public infrastructure was being improved. And at the same time, the, the classical architecture in that sort of formal way was considered kind of boring. And there were other styles that were much more exciting. And... The one that was really exciting, and they were talking about now starting in the late 1850s, and it really hits America in the 60s and into the 70s. What was really exciting was this style which came out of Paris. This was the French Empire, middle period. The French were extremely powerful, especially in cultural power, you know, shopping and opera and painting and all this stuff that was really interesting across the world. That style was modeled on the Louvre itself. And so that sort of palace style with the mansard roof and all the incrustation of columns and sculpture just became sort of this thing that captivated people's imagination and they wanted to see it everywhere. And it, and actually the British liked it. The British started to use it in their government buildings all over the place. So by the time the Civil War was over and it was the about 1869, Grant administration, 
this was the style that they really wanted to push even here in Washington. There was a lot of ambitious construction in the Washington, D.C. area at that time. Was that a was this, uh, you know, style and showing the ability to be able to build these very elegant buildings? Was that part of almost like establishing yourself as a world power then? I, I think absolutely. Uh, Washington had its struggled in the early 19th century to make itself work as a city. It was always under, it had problems with, with commercial, attracting commercial development, et cetera. And it was, that was a swamp. And well, you know, most of the, the truth is that most of the cities on the, on the water, you know, have swampy areas, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, they all did. It's just Washington had a harder time kind of pulling it together. Uh, and it was considered a hardship place because it was, because of that, that weather and the, and the, and the, the humidity, et cetera. But in the 1870s, they really started to beef up the infrastructure, bringing in fresh water from the mountains on the aqueduct, paving all the streets, putting in trees. So by the late 19th century, the city had been transformed into this leafy, beautiful place that had a lot of cultural stuff going on. So this architecture reflected, I think, those ambitions. It also reflects a kind of an interest, not so much in civic authority from you know, Roman times, but actually a much more, it's a little bit more sumptuous. Like, wow, we've kind of arrived. We've got, all of a sudden, we've got this industrial revolution money. Let's show them how good we can make it. It took uh, almost 18 years to build. Yeah. And of course, that's the irony is that it was designed in 1870. Uh, Construction began in 71. And of course, it was finished in 1888. And by that time, it was really out of style because this French Empire style was really hot for a while, you know, in America. And by the 1870, late 1870s, it's being eclipsed by others. And so it just starts to go downhill in people's heads. When it first opened, there was mixed reaction, but actually mostly positive. There were people thought it was, some people thought it was ugly, but some, one guy said it was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen, you know. I, I, I'm just, I, I'm just, uh, I would like to, to, to explore that greater. I, I, yeah. I looked at some quotes from Mark Twain and Mark Twain called it the ugliest building he had ever seen. Um, let's pick that up in the next uh, segment. I'm speaking with Thomas Lupke. Secretary Commission of the Fine Arts and editor of the book, A Palace of State Eisenhower Executive Building. Coming up next, we'll talk about the architect of the building and the outcome of the criticism for him. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black, and today I'm talking to Thomas Lupke, Secretary Commission of the Fine Arts and editor of the Palace of the State Eisenhower Executive Office Building. So, Tom, we were talking about the criticism. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I looked at some quotes and Mark Twain, again, referred to the building as the ugliest building in America. Why? What caused this critical outcries? I mean, that's pretty, um, you know, mean. Well, it's an interesting question in, in terms of how people thought about architecture and its role. Um, by the end of the 19th century in America and elsewhere, there was a really a big new emphasis on classicism, and particularly in this, in a monumental way, big, colossal classicism. And that's really the spirit, uh, well, in America, it comes out of the Chicago Fair that was, de- that was designed by Daniel Burnham. Uh, so this is this huge fair that literally a third of the country came and saw. For some, many people, it was the first time they ever saw electric lighting. It was fantastic 
in the in a, in a, in a, for people's experience to see all this all done in this very monumental white classical almost like a heavenly experience and so that just really informed the way public buildings were built for the next you know, all the way into through the 30s until modernism takes over so there was a kind of a clean uh, you know a monumentality that was becoming much more the taste and this building is very there's many things you could use to describe it sculptural fussy you know wedding cake wedding cake there's so many ways to do it it, it comes out of this sort of you know french it's actually it, as i said it's the louvre but it was the louvre kind of redoing the renaissance you know it's 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 sort of a it's a it's a kind of a one, third, one critic actually called it the infant asylum Oh, I've never heard that. Yeah, the yeah, I, I, asylum. yeah. I, 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 it was because there was an orphan asylum, and they moved from it. Oh, that's a hilarious story. I've never yeah. heard that. Yes, the, the the truth is that the State Department. Now, this building was built for the departments of State, War, and Navy. It was essentially like State plus Defense, and the State Department had to lease. They had, they got moved out of an old building where the Treasury Department moved expanded to. And so they were renting something called the orphan asylum. So that is that makes sense that this is now the infant asylum. But the irony, of course, is that this thing this is the largest office building in certainly in the city, if not the country, at the when it was completed. It's got two miles of corridors yeah. interior. It's got like ten acres of office building. I mean, just to put it in the in and you know size mind, that's the the facts yeah. that I was able to pull up on online at least. And so that's a huge building by any standard. That's correct. It's it's enormous. Now. I understand that Alfred Mullet, who was the architect, um, committed suicide. Yeah, and and was sued during right. Was it all? Was it around this building? Well, it was actually very much connected to this building, but actually he was suing the government, not the other way around. Here's the background on Mullet. He was um, he 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 was worked in private practice in the 1860s came to Washington in the late 1860s and worked on, at the time, again, this is right after the Civil War, there's a tremendous construction boom across the country of buildings for the business of the federal government, for example, for post offices, courthouses, custom houses, all this stuff. And so he's got his finger, he, he works for, he is he becomes the supervising architect of the Treasury Department, which the Treasury are the people that actually are building these things. Right, and it's actually the precursor of today's GSA. So his role, his job is to design buildings for the Treasury Department. He gets asked by the Secretary of State to design this new building, and he does it. But in the end, he feels like it was actually an extra, and that he should be should have been paid extra outside of his normal duties to design this big building. Um, and and so in the end, the lawsuit had to do with he was suing the government for more pay. Now, he and the Secretary of State both leave the project after three or four years in 1874, 75, and it goes, gets passed on to others. So it's, it's and, and he, he, he has a, his, his career does not become as spectacular as he's hoped. And by 1890s, he loses the lawsuit and then that's when he commits suicide. Now, it took 10, I'm sorry, it took 18 years to build and it yeah. took $10 million back then to build. Now, I, I did an inflation inflation calculator online, and that's uh, well over $200 million in today's uh, dollars. That's that's a lot of money. Yeah, but you couldn't build it for $200 million. <laughs> It would be significantly <laughs> more. That's true. The material, the material that... Just uh, the, the buildings are made of huge granite 
uh, uh, structural granite that is, you know, three feet deep stacking up. I mean, it's, it's got cast iron everywhere, marble corridors. It's, it's, it would, it would be a, a little bit more than 200 million. <laughs> if, if, if listeners out there haven't walked by this building, it's well worth, uh, it's a long walk actually. It's, uh, how many blocks is it? Well, it's a, it's big DC blocks. It's, uh, you know, the building is 700 feet long in one direction and four or five in the other. It's a it's a big building. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. And our guest today is Thomas Lupke, Secretary of the Commission of the Fine Arts. This is a colossal building, as you said. It's a big building and um, was the largest building for a very long time. Um, I described it as being 10 acres of office space. Um, is there a uh, is there an official size uh, for the building? Well, it's it's just about seven hundred thousand square feet, but that's a gross figure. Uh, it doesn't doesn't subtract out the circulation and stuff. So ten acres, which is, you know, four hundred and something thousand. It sounds about right. Uh, you know, the bigger buildings now, the Pentagon certainly was bigger. But again, the Pentagon was built to replace the offices that were in this building for a long time. So you know, it's 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 all part of that federal government office space that has to be accommodated um anyway so state state was the first to move in in 1875 and then then navy came in uh and then the war department finally in the 1880s when they were all three all three departments in here you know well into the 20th century so the interior of the building was actually designed by a different architect correct it was Partially mullet because he he was there for a while, and then there was another main designer named uh, Richard von Edsdorf, who was an Austrian immigre, and it's not clear exactly who did which, but certainly mullet was involved in the design of the. So each, the building was sort of divided up into wings, and the State Department was the first, and it has a each each of these um, wings for each of the departments has a significant library, an executive suite, and a reception room. So they. They they all have a different kind of flavor because the State Department was done first, and then the, the Navy's got a different style, and then the War Department, which is another decade later, has a completely different style. They're all in this kind of Victorian character, but they're all very different. In some ways, innovative. Um, the the State Department library was all sort of lacy and white with little bits of gold on it. It looks like sort of like cast iron doilies. It's really amazing. It was considered a, a prototype for libraries. In fact, when the the Peabody Library in, in Baltimore was looking for designing their building, they came and looked at this one because it was right before they built theirs. So what's your favorite part of the interior? I've been in the building and I've had the luxury of not seeing that, though I would have loved to seen that library, but being on the other side and seeing one of the libraries there, it, it's just magnificent. You've been through the whole building. What is your what is the most unique and favorite part of the building? Can you describe it? I would say, so just for the listeners to understand, the build, as I said, there's three libraries, three big reception rooms. Actually, War doesn't really have a reception room. Oh, actually, they, I'm sorry, they do. They're, they're all the, and they all have different characters. So it's sort of, it's a question of taste. I will tell you that the War Library which is the latest, is actually maybe the most spectacular and interesting and unusual. It's a kind of a weird, it's done in the 1880s, and it's a very eclectic blend of Gothic, Moorish, uh, classical colonnettes, beautiful Roman-style uh, mosaic floors. Um, it's got, you know, crazy 
castings into the bookshelves. It's it's just a, it's a spectacular space. Unlike anything you've seen, it's all in sort of dark woven metal. It, it's not. It's really unusual. Are there photos of these rooms in the book? Oh yeah, we have to. We had to uh, document everything, and we got the best pictures we could. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. Our guest today is Thomas Lupke, Secretary of the Commission of the Fine Arts. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Thomas Lupke. Secretary Commission of the Fine Arts and editor of the Palace of the State and the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. Tom, before we start talking about the history associated with the building, um, the interiors of the building, I, as I mentioned, I've been in there before and had a chance to walk up and look up these magnificent staircases with these stained glass windows that are in this building. Um, can we talk about those a little bit and, and who designed them and, and a little bit of history? Because I, I think for a while there, especially some of the stained glass windows were removed. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so it's a the building, if you can imagine, is an is a enormous figure eight in its plan. And in the inside corners, there are eight, on the insides, there are the eight stairs in these sort of little corners. And they go up the full height of the building, you know, four or five stories. They are sort of a quarter circle. Each one is a granite tread that's cantilevered into the wall and, and they're incredibly graceful. They go up and up and up and on the top of each one of them is some kind of a, of a rotunda or dome with skylights. So and, they, and they're different depending on the wing. The ones in the south are slightly oval and then halfway through the, after Mullet left, they were like, hmm, that's expensive. Let's make them perfectly circular because it's easier to build. So then the north ones look different. And then the, the most spectacular things I think you're referring to are the ones in the center, in the middles of the center, uh, that are double stairs. And they also have incredible uh, stained glass domes. The one on the east for the Navy Department was kind of a red, white, and blue scheme. And on the, the west for the War Department is much more of a milky glass, more a little bit more what we consider to be a Tiffany style. Now, the eastern one, they, by the way, all these stained glass windows were, were, were painted over, blacked out, or removed during, the, during World War II for, for blackout, you know, anti-bombing protection, and they were left that way. So part of the work that's happened over the decades starting in the 1980s was to restore these. And in one case, the, the red, white, and blue one, they just had to remove the paint and fix a few things, repaint, but on the west we had to reconstruct because... Uh, I have an interesting connection here in that I was working in the building as a historic researcher in the, in the 1984, and I found the drawing in, <laughs> in the archives, and I just said, oh, I know, this sort of wedge-shaped, so we, we actually knew the pattern, this sort of Tiffany pattern. It had a key on it saying, this, this piece of glass will be number five, this one will be number two. We knew what the pattern was, but we didn't have a code to match to the colors. So what happened is that they, they, they reconstructed it speculatively based, based on what would have been done. But they, there's no way to know if it's exactly the right um, color combination. But it's a beautiful, so it's still a good example of a reconstruction of a late 19th century um, skylight. It's, it's magnificent. It is magnificent. And that's fascinating how you, you came about those colors and, and, and how lucky we were to find that drawing. Now, I've looked up these staircases, and, the, and, and if the sun is just right, the color comes down on that gorgeous granite uh, uh, 
they're granite or limestone stairs. What they're oh, it's all granite. They're yeah. all granite. They're yeah. granite. Yeah. And then the the actual staircase itself is very ornate. Yeah. Can you describe that? Well, this, so the granite, uh, the, the the all the balusters are these bundled cast bronze. Uh, they're, they're quite ornate. They're all sort of leafy, and they've got bundles on them, and then the beautiful mahogany handrail. So it's a big. This kind of care was given to this public building. This was the State Department. This is the War Department. They, uh, of course, it was like a cleaning nightmare. They had armies of of people, you know, brushing them away. But I, I want to get back to this topic about the granite. Uh, one of the things about the building was that it was almost all structural granite or cast iron, and this was fire protection. Um, there had been some disastrous fires in the mid nineteenth century. The white well, the White House was was set on fire, but the, in the eighteen sixties, the Patent Office burned, which is only a few blocks away. Uh, they really wanted to be as careful as they could, so the whole building is it's got the, it's brick, granite, and then they they spanned all the floors with with cast iron beams, and then they would brick vault in between them. So the whole thing is intended to be as as you know safe from fire as it could be. Well, they had candles and gas lights, and it, they had to be. It, it was very practical yes. to build it that way. This is a time of great technological change. They certainly candles not, but they did have gasoliers, and then it's one of the first buildings to have to be designed with elevators, passenger elevators coming in in the 1870s. Uh, they also had uh, all sorts of sort of passive air handling. They didn't have fans, but they had all these chases with air coming in and. Uh, you know, there so there's a lot of there's a lot of like movement forward. The first building to have telegraph service, telephone service, et cetera, in the, in in because it's the, basically the, it was the executive branch headquarters. The Eisenhower Building office building was called the State War and Navy Building when completed. As you mentioned, those were some of the first tenants. Um, what were some of the significant events that occurred while they were uh, when they occupied that building? Well, it's a great question, and of course, you're talking about you know, U.S. foreign policy and military policy in the late 19th and all the way you know into the 20th century. So a lot of stuff went down there that, you, you know, we can only imagine. But the stuff that, that we know about, for example, uh, you know, at, at the time, these major uh, uh, diplomatic issues, for example, the, the in the building, the, the Secretary of State would have uh, uh, sent the, the Spanish ambassador packing after the Bay, uh, excuse me, the... Um, uh, Spanish-American War, the sinking of the Maine. Uh, after after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, they brought in the Japanese ambassadors and Secretary of State Cordell Hulls handed them their credentials and sent them. You know, so it's, there's certain kind of drama that would have been occurring here. And again, and this is a, in a time which was much more face-to-face interaction and very formal. Well, no email. <laughs> right, no email. <laughs> exactly. Have a uh, telephones were just coming to be, right? Uh, certainly in the, yeah, in the, by the, they would have had telephones even by the Spanish-American War, but, but yeah. So it, what significant um, individuals, historical figures during that time had offices there and, and were, are there any backstories to why the offices looked like they did or, you know, um, had uh, configurations or furniture? That's a, that's actually a great question. And I think everybody puts their finger, you know, there has, you know, has some effect on the space as they build it. But over time, there are a couple of interesting figures who had offices in the building, two of whom, actually three, uh, became presidents. So we had um, in the we had actually an assistant secretary of the Navy, Navy named Theodore Roosevelt, who then leaves and goes and 
does his 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 big sort of PR uh, spectacular in the Spanish American War, and then is comes back and is Secretary of War, and eventually becomes president. And then in uh, the a uh, little bit later in the uh, in the in the teens, uh, his cousin is a uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt is as and also the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and he. Um, uh, during this is the time when the during World War One, where the office space is suddenly they have a terrible amount of need for this, and he actually authorizes them to go ahead and build all these temporary buildings down on the mall to take care of the, the office space, and it's really where where that the Navy starts to move out of that building. Um, those those temporary buildings lasted until the seventies, so that was an amazing story. The third person I want to mention is that the great general of the armies uh, in World War. One was John Pershing, and after it's all after the war is over, he moves in 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 the early twenties as the head of the American Battle Monuments Commission, which is overseas cemeteries. He takes the Secretary of Navy's office, which is a sumptuous suite, and he's in there for twenty five years until they move. He dies, and they they end up moving. That's the end of it. But uh, one of his assistants for a little while was a was a young staff army guy named Dwight D Eisenhower. So Eisenhower was in this building several times in his military career in the 20s and 30s. So that's one of the reasons why he's honored with the name by by naming the building after him. When did the building start getting used by the presidents? So that that's an interesting question. I said the um because of this space, you know, you you know, it was built in the late 19th century for a certain you know, capacity for the government. And of course the country is just burgeoning, you know, and the government gets bigger and we've had some world wars going on. By the 30s, it's getting pretty dire. 20s and 30s, the Navy moves out. The War War Department essentially moves out. Um, and so in 18, 1938, uh, the executive office of the president is starting to get bigger and bigger. This is during the New Deal under now President Franklin D. Roosevelt. And so the first people that move in is the Bureau of the Budget, which is now the oh, what we call Office of Management Budget, or OMB. They move in. And so over that sort of 10-year period during the war, that, you know, there's a lot of executive departments. And then in the late 40s, State Department moves out completely. And it the whole building becomes the executive office of the president. So from 19, I think, 49 onward, it's a, it's basically the, the president's, you know, executive uh, functions in there. I'm speaking with Thomas Lupke, Secretary of Commission of the Fine Arts and editor of the Palace of the State Eisenhower Executive Office Building. Coming up next, we'll continue to talk about how the old executive office building functioned for the presidents. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking to Thomas Lupke, Secretary Commission of Fine Arts and Editor of the Palace of the State Eisenhower Executive Office Building. Now, Thomas, we were talking about some of the history and, and some of the presidents that had uh, did business. It's still part of of uh, the president's staff that's in the building. But there's a couple of presidents that had some offices and and some significant events that occurred there with the presidents. Can we talk about Lyndon B. Johnson for a moment? Well, sure. Uh, you know, by the way, it's just for those who don't know the city, it's literally across a little street that you called Executive West Executive Avenue. It's literally just, you know. 200 paces from the west wing of the White House. So, and now that's actually closed, so it's actually all part of this campus. Um, and it was became the overflow place for the growing 
executive office of the president. So starting in the 50s, you know, there was a lot of presidential activity over here. They used to use the what's called the Indian Treaty Room, which is the, which is the Navy reception room, a very sumptuous space. Uh, they used that for press conferences all the time, starting with Eisenhower. Um, and then I think what you're referring to is that some of the vice presidents had offices here. And in fact, the Secretary of Navy's office became eventually the ceremonial office of the vice president. And it is to this day. Mike Pence is in that Mike Pence is in that building. And uh, there's a very interesting uh, George uh, Herbert Walker Bush story about that, which we can get to. But Lyndon Johnson uh, was definitely in there in the early 60s under President Kennedy. And of course, right after the assassination, they fly back to Washington from, from Dallas and they come straight in here and sit around. We have a picture in the book of them sitting around trying to figure out like, okay, we have to transition now. And you know, this is, he's already taken the oath on the plane, but it's a very, it's a kind of a high drama environment. Nixon, uh, the next uh, president after Johnson, Nixon also had what he called his hideaway office, I, presumably to get away from the craziness of the West Wing. So he had this sort of office uh, in one of the rooms on the, I think on the first floor. And there's a picture in there of him talking to Henry Kissinger. So it was a place, and, and I, and I'm not certain, but it may be a place where some of the tapes were made. So it, there's always this kind of connection to the, you know, the, the status, the drama, the, the prominence of the presidency. So Lyndon B. Johnson's office was there at the time of uh, the assassination. Uh, what were some of the events that occurred after that? I, I had read that there are some significant events that occurred or they set up some command centers there that dealt with the transition. Oh, I think that they there's a, there's a picture of them meeting in his office immediately, like that day or day after, to try to figure out that transition. Of course, he's already president at this point. They also set up an office—they uh, they call it a, a, a Oval Office replica, but it wasn't. But they did move Kennedy's things, his effects, out of the West Wing and into this space and then and then use it to, to place, you know, condolence gifts, et cetera. And so it was a place for the First Lady, Jacqueline— Kennedy to, uh, you know, manage that sort of part of the process. So, you know, we sort of a transition space as well. So it's, um, you know, fast forward, um, you know, I have been in that building since uh, before 9-11 and after 9-11. And I noticed a, a drastic change in security. I remember directly after 9-11, we weren't allowed to even to attend meetings on one side of the building because, of security concerns. Can you talk about how that affected the building, the architecture, or any of the preservation efforts you had going underway? Well, you know, the the, the most important thing to remember is this is a very well-built, huge building that's hard to do much to, hard to get, you know, air ducts and wiring and stuff. So after a hundred something years, it was just kind of a mess with, you know, wiring, cabling, sitting in troughs through this, through the corridors and everything. There were, there were, there are, I don't know how many, let's, let's say there's a thousand windows in the building. There were, you know, probably 958 window air conditioners because there was no central AC. So 9-11 was what actually made the first comprehensive renovation of the building possible since it was constructed. So that was a huge thing where they, and they, what, what you're referring to is that they basically decided that the building wasn't actually safe from blast and it needed to be upgraded structurally and all these other things. And while they were doing it, that they would do all these other systems. And while they were doing the systems, the GSA also added a tiny percentage so that they could actually do some of the preservation of these significant spaces. So the whole package was quite an amazing redo. Uh, they built it in phases, wing by wing, 
kind of the way it was built in the first place and coming back in with under the floor uh, cabling and putting in all new air handling and everything that you would need to make a sort of a, a modern functioning office building. So it's, uh, and in, in the end, they also, you know, were able to restore a lot of these significant public spaces. So most of what you see, you know, in these pictures are the, that, that smaller percentage of the public spaces, the, the, the main suites of offices are, are, are just have just been brought up to a contemporary standard. That must be a challenge, balancing preservation requirements and needs and likes and keeping in a working office. Um, how do you do that and stay within budget? Well, I I can't speak to the budget because I don't have much to do with that part of it. We really consult with them in terms of the design. But there are ways of doing that You know, in a, in a really significant building like this. You actually have to make hierarchies or tiers where you say, well, these are the most significant spaces that need to be changed the least. And here are places where you can do a lot. And here's a place where you could be able to accommodate certain things or others. So it's, it's a, you just get a lot of people to figure out the right answer and good designers and, and good contractors. And hopefully you end up with the right solution, but you know, it, you, ha- you have to talk it through because it's, it's not so obvious all the time. So I, I'm, talked with other guests and I know that uh, that are in the same um, um, you know type of fields and I know there's a lot of debate on Capitol Hill in regards to whether these things should be budgeted enough or not um, and enough is is a matter of opinion but do you have any perspective on that and and uh, you know I, I and I'm going to be upfront with you I, I think it's important to preserve our history because learning about our history, whether it be the architecture, uh, why the arts, you know, were designed like that, really helps us manage what decisions we make in the future. Um, do you believe that there's enough attention to this kind of budget during these very tough budget times? Yeah, I, you know, you sh- you're taking the words out of my mouth to to an extent. You know, it's a I wouldn't be doing my job. I wouldn't be doing in this field if I didn't think that. Um, yes. Absolutely, you know we have we have a very rich history as an as a nation. It's it's a it's a it, and it manifests itself over the longest period of time in our in the in these physical ways, the physical objects, the buildings, the interiors, and they speak to us over the decades about where we were. Perhaps they inform where we're going, but it's priceless and it's irreplaceable. And you know, I would say you know I would love to see you know more resources dedicated to preservation just because it's it is who we are and it's who it will inform where we go so I, th- I think it's very important and I'm thrilled to be part of that work you're listening to leaders and legends in government on federal news radio part of federal news network and our guest today is Thomas Lupke secretary commission of fine arts and editor of the palace of the state Eisenhower executive building Tom you clearly have a strong passion for preserving history and the preserving the history for the next generation, assuring that it's there for us to learn to make future uh, decisions. How'd you get into these this role? If somebody, uh, if there was a listener out there that would like to follow your steps, your successful journey in your career, what advice would you have? Uh, well, it's a, a number of things. Uh, I so I told you I had started. I studied history. My father was actually a historian, and so I kind of came into. That growing up with a kind of a, he always was taking us to historic places and buildings and all that kind of thing. So I think that there I had a taste for it already. Um, and then when I was in college, I was trying to figure out what to do, and I decided to come to Washington D.C. on an internship. And I came to 
a, a, a brand new institution called the National Building Museum, and I got involved in some research and sort of public programming and stuff there. And it was I think that's really was what got me really excited about that idea of preservation. Eventually, I decided to become an architect and do design, and I work, I practiced in that field for a good dozen years. And, and so I, w- I guess I would say it's interesting that your the advice is, um, you know, build on your interest if, if you've got it. Uh, I think one of the things that is good for me in my work is that I also have the 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 on the boards practical experience as a as an architect, so I understand really what the designers and the, and and the, you know you know the, the contractors all these more, slightly more complicated technical issues that I can bring to it uh, because I had that real work experience. So it's kind of, I think I'm a little unusual that I have both in a, in a public sector. So is there internships available at the Commission uh, of Fine Arts or is there internships or volunteer opportunities that maybe some of our listeners who might be considering this can get some experience? Not so much uh, with us. We're, we're tiny and we run on such a fast little turnaround. It's not good work for interns, but there are plenty of institutions that are dedicated to preservation. The Building Museum, by the way, we actually, it's a government-owned building that the Building Museum is in, and we're, we're back in there. I'm, I'm in that building once again for the third job I've had in my life in that building, which is just a funny coincidence, but um, there are museums, there are historic sites, there's the National Trust for Historic Preservation, there's lots of, there's lots of advocacy agency, uh, advocacy groups for preservation if that's the interest of somebody to get involved. So if one of our listeners, we've been talking about this wonderful book you edited and published uh, in, with the commission uh, about the executive office building, how could they get it and, um, or where could they buy it? Well, uh, so it's a it's our publication at the Commission of Fine Arts, but it's available through a number of sources. Uh, our distributor, you can you can get it from our website. You can order it, and it'll take you, I think, to the University of Massachusetts Press, which is our which is our distributor. But you can probably get it through the I think you can get it through the general printing office, but you can also get it, I'm sure, through Amazon. It's going to show up on any. I search. saw it on Amazon. Yeah. So it's pretty easy to get. And it's well worth the investment. And if you have some free time this summer with your kids, I highly recommend just taking a walk around the building. It's just phenomenal. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Thomas Lipke, Secretary Commission of Fine Arts and Editor of the Palace of State Eisenhower Executive Office Building. Tom, I just want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you for your service, uh, helping us preserve all these wonderful buildings and sharing your amazing story about the history of this of the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. I'm Aileen Black. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.